JoyCamp 2016 is on. Join us for some true fun in the sun, June 5th through 8th, 2016. Take time for yourself at this women-only retreat designed especially for you. Enjoy sunrise yoga, meditation, hikes on some of the most beautiful trails in the country, great food, relaxing spa treatments, workshops, and the happiest hotel in Scottsdale, Arizona, the iconic luxury boutique Hotel Valley Ho. Optional workshops with Julie Riesler and Connie Bowman will give us all some time to relax, reboot, and reconnect with our joyful selves. Early bird registration begins now. Contact Connie at ConnieBowman.com or Julie at JulieRiesler.com to hold your space. For additional nights at the special Joy Camp rate and spa reservations, reserve soon. Full amount due May 1, 2016. See you at Joy Camp. of Happy Healthy You, the weekly podcast, where we talk about all things body, mind, and spirit, living a happy, healthy life, and all that. And I finally got around to watching the last couple of Oscar-nominated films, and I made the mistake of watching them back-to-back. So the first one was Room. Oh my gosh, so good. The acting was amazing. The story was harrowing. And I don't want to give anything away, but I... Well, I'm not going to give anything away, but the theme of being in a prison and escaping and transitioning to freedom and actually how hard it can be when you when you free yourself from whatever it is that's holding you back. And we're going to talk about that today. The second film I watched the next night was Revenant. Oh my gosh, crazy. Ugh. Again, Leonardo DiCaprio was uh, a great performer and I have nothing nothing to say about his acting except for that it was completely brilliant and the movie was beautifully filmed and everything but both of those films included rape scenes so I'm really not a fan so next year can we please just kind of steer away I'm just saying this to the whole entertainment industry from any scenes that have to do with any kind of rape we had three of those right we had Spotlight we had Revenant and then we had Room so let's just let's just find something else to write about next year. You know, great films. So that being said, let's talk about escaping the prison that we put ourselves in with our weight. I have to say that I have a little bit of an issue with men and weight loss. As a woman, I know how hard it can be to drop weight. And I contrast that with the men in my life who seem to be able to drop it so quickly. But I know I need to be a little more compassionate about that. And Today, I'm going to talk to someone who can help us shine a light on weight loss for both men and women and maybe help get us all inspired to make the changes we all desire before the bathing suit season starts, I might add. (laughs) Dr. Glenn Livingston is our guest today, and he's a veteran psychologist and a longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. His work... Theories and research have been published in major periodicals. 
Disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer the overweight and or food-obsessed male, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. So we'll ask him about that. More importantly, his own journey out of obesity and food prison to a normal weight to a much more lighthearted, healthy relationship with food. And he's also the author of Never Binge Again. Welcome, Dr. Livingston. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast to talk about escaping this food prison. Oh, I am I am delighted to be here. And with that introduction, I've got so many things I want to Ah! Oh, I'm so glad. Well, it's funny because this week my son was home and we were binge watching the binge binging. We're going to talk about that today. We're watching the last of the Oscar films and we watched Revenant and Room. Have you seen Room? I haven't, but I I made notes as you were making your reviews and okay. I can't wait to see it. So. Okay, yeah. I mean, that, that whole theme. I don't want to give anything away if anybody hasn't seen it. It's so brilliant. I mean, Brie Larson is the... Uh, female Best Actress winner for the the Academy Awards this year, and she was just beautiful. And the little boy in the film was amazing. I mean, they're just the acting was impeccable. But the story of, about this this mother and son who were locked in this room. She was there for seven years. He was there for the whole of his life. And the idea of getting out. I'll, I will tell you that. Obviously, most people know they get out eventually. But the idea of transitioning to freedom it's even though we want to be free from things like anything addictions negativity negative thoughts whatever it is that keeps us sort of enslaved sometimes that transition can be hard you know Connie when when I was 16 I had this dream that I was in a prison cell really oh I, I, I did I did and I was terrified and I felt like my life was over and I'd been trapped in this prison cell. And then towards the end of the dream, I realized that the door was just slightly ajar and I could have walked out the whole time and the whole, uh, I, I don't know that that's what happened in the movie room. So I, I can't really, well, I you'll have to watch it because you're pretty on target. So anyway, yeah, but, but the, the door was open and I remember waking up and that was one of the pivotal dreams that I had in my life. And I've kind of looked at that as a, lens through which to view the problems and fears that I develop at times when I look at the obstacles in my life and I think that there's no way out because very frequently there is that door that's just a little bit ajar and if you just stop panicking for a moment and take a look at it um, you can walk right out and that's that's really what I found to be the case for overeating stress eating binge eating that There are a number of um, things in our culture and having to do with uh, the food industry that make it seem like there's no escape. We can really be imprisoned by our craving for that extra bar or four of chocolate or having a fight with a bagel and losing. Um, but, But really, we have the control the whole time. And there are a couple of simple ways to change your perspective and re recognize that 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 control is is inside you. So I I like the metaphor that you started us out with. Ah, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I didn't even know that was going to happen. So so you were heavy. It's so brave of you to talk about your your journey. Can you talk a little bit about your personal experience? Well, yeah, and I, I do have to say that I, I think men 
do have it a little easier when they're heavy because, you know, I'm six foot four and I'm kind of muscular also. And so um, even though I was clinically obese, I was about 60 pounds heavier than I, than I am. Um, I, I didn't really get a lot of people saying, Glenn, you ought to lose a lot of weight. You know, I could, I could put on a suit and I could function in the business world and, you know, maybe, maybe my wife noticed, maybe my mom noticed a little bit, but nobody was really bothering me to lose the weight. And, um, that, that's, um, I, I think that women are much more, there's a lot more emphasis on women's figures in our culture. And, and I think that women are much more cognizant of their figures. And so it's in some ways easier for men to get in trouble with their weight because they're not, they're not as bothered by it as soon as they should be, as soon as the health consequences come into play. But, um, yes, I, I was, I was a heavy guy. And when I was younger, I used to, I guess you'd call me an exercise bulimic. I, which meant I liked to work out a lot so I could eat whatever I wanted to, except when I got a little older and I started having patients and I was married and, you know, had other responsibilities, I didn't have time to work out as much as I really needed to. And I suppose my metabolism slowed a little bit, but I found it difficult to stop eating the way that I was eating, which was, you know, really dislodging my jaw and emptying the delicatessen into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, it started to really become a problem when not only was I gaining weight, but I, I had trouble, I had trouble letting go of the food obsession. I would be sitting with, patients I was a couples and family therapist and I'd be sitting with patients and I would think I really can't wait until this is over so I can get a whole pizza and it, it just wasn't fair to my patients I felt like I, I felt like I was um, not being a man of integrity I wasn't being the doctor I was meant to be and um, so I intensively researched all the different ways that I might be able to get out of it. And I spent, I spent a lot of years thinking there was something horribly wrong with me. I, I went to, I went to programs where they told me that I had a disease and it was a chronic progressive disease and I would never be able to cure it. I can only, you know, abstain from it one day at a time. And um, I, I just kind of wasn't willing to accept that. And I went aggressively looking for another solution and I looked at the research and, um, you know, I, I suppose I'm I'm kind of rushing through that story, but that that is the story, and mm-hmm. I, eventually I figured out it wasn't really as complicated as I thought it was as a psychologist. Mm, I love that. I love that you came to that, and I love that you were so tenacious and you had this intuition that that there might be another way. And I think there there are so many different ways to get out of all of these things that whether we call them addictions or not. I mean, we all have obsessive thoughts or or addictions or proclivities towards certain things and there's there's something for everybody out there so bravo to you for searching tell us about that study that you did because you funded your own study you went to the the that great length to to study 40,000 40,000 participants that's huge i, I needed to figure it out it yeah and, um, you did I, yeah yeah so well, the study we did uh, a long time ago, it's not online anymore. There was a, we advertised for a personality test that would relate personality to food. And people would take a um, kind of custom personality test of about, I think it was 17, 18 questions. And then we would have an inventory of the foods that they had difficulty controlling. And 
by doing that, we could relate different emotional struggles and personality types to uh, the particular types of food that people craved. And I have a lot of publicity about this, by the way, because it sounds kind of um, interesting, exciting. It's a good talking point. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm going to tell you up front that 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 doesn't mean that knowing this really cures anything. Right. So one of the interesting things that we found was that people who gravitate towards chocolate when they you know, when they want to cheat, not that chocolate is always cheating, but people that gravitate towards chocolate when they want to cheat tend to do so because they're feeling lonely or unloved. And that was kind of interesting. And then people who gravitate towards bagels and pastas and, you know, heavy starches, they tend to do that because they're feeling stressed out, particularly at work, but also in the family. Um, and then we found that people who were gravitating towards, um, salty fatty chips and bags of stuff were doing it because they felt anxious and um so i really thought that i had something there i really thought that well now if i know what somebody craves i kind of know what the psychological issues are and therefore if i find out someone's really craving chocolate i should really work with them on their feelings of loneliness and feeling unloved or like they're not going to find a mate or that their mate isn't perfect for them. And I, I really thought that that was going to help them with their cravings for chocolate. But what happened instead was I would talk to the person about, I would lead them in that direction. And it seemed like they drew the conclusion that they'd have to, they'd have to work out all of their, conflicts about feeling unloved, feeling lonely before they could stop eating chocolate. So it's almost like there was something inside of them that said, oh, this is a really great excuse. Now, until I figure out why my mommy Mm. and my daddy didn't love me enough and I can get enough love in my life, I'm just going to have chocolate instead. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's that that was consistent for men and women, the results of the study, all of those results? It was actually a little more so for women. Okay. Um, if, if I remember correctly, I haven't looked at it in a long time, but it's a little, little more so for women. Yeah, because when you said chocolate and love, I'm like, oh, uh, I'm there. Chocolate is love. What <laughs> What are you talking about? Isn't chocolate love? <laughs> oh, I, I mean. It's yeah, funny sure. because it's Lent right now as we record this. And every year for Lent, I give up. Well, I give up wine. Wine's the only thing I drink. And during the holidays, I probably drink too much. I definitely drink too much because I love it with food. And there's so many parties. And then... Uh, sweets over the holidays, even though I usually don't eat much sugar, I, you know, I start and like everybody else, it's, it's an issue. I start and sometimes I can't really stop very easily. And so I give that up too. And I, I try to have a really clear diet because I think that helps me with my spiritual work that I want to do during Lent. So, so, um, that's what I'm doing right now. And it's interesting, um, what I'm feeling. I do feel like I'm kind of free. <laughs> I don't like after a couple of weeks, I don't, I, I have no interest in having a glass of wine or any kind of dessert. And I'm really kind of, it's kind of cool actually. That's because we, we crave things when we're, when they seem like an option to us. Hmm. See, people, people think it's like there's this voice inside of us that says you can't, you can't give up chocolate for two weeks. You're going to die. You're going to be starving. It's going to be horrible. You're going to be tortured every day with cravings for chocolate. But 
what happens is the decision's already been made, and so it doesn't really require any willpower yeah, yeah. to do that. True, true. I've made that decision. I, I've made that rule for myself. Yeah. 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 I'll tell you a funny story about chocolate, um, and maybe this can lead to a discussion about what actually worked for me and has been working for the clients that I work with. Okay. Um, I, I, I believe that we all have this kind of alter ego inside of us that um, – once uh, it's, its job is to get us to break the rule. So whatever rule we set up, and I, I have no judgments, by the way, about whatever rules people want to set up. Um, people usually come to me. Some of them want to stop eating chocolate entirely. Some of them want to have it just on weekends. Some want to have it every other day. Whatever, whatever you've identified as your trouble foods and you know behaviors that you want to modify, that's that's my job is to help you to to do that. I don't have any judgments about that. But for me personally. That little voice inside um, was particularly dangerous when it came to chocolate. I One bar of chocolate was never enough for me. I always wanted to have four or five, and then that would rev me up tremendously, and then I want to kind of chase it with some muffins or some pizza, and it just always led to a, a really big binge. And so I had decided at one point that I just couldn't have chocolate anymore. And I remember when I decided that, it was on a Monday, and I – I had also read a book about eating more vegetables. And I, I was standing at a Starbucks counter waiting for my you know, latte in the morning. And there was this big mega chocolate bar that was just staring at me. And of course, there was a long line. And um, so by the time I got there, my I, now I call my alter ego my inner pig. And <laughs> so, so, some people don't like that. It, it works for me. I don't, I don't confuse it with the... Um, with the real farm animal, okay. the pig, because they're really sweet. I, I call it my inner pig because it's constantly ruining my best laid plans and all of my goals and aspirations and dreams. And this is just an example of how it did. As I'm, as I'm getting to the line, I hear this little voice inside that says, you know, Glenn, ch- chocolate comes from a cocoa tree. It comes from cocoa beans and cocoa beans grow on a tree and a tree is a plant mm-hmm. and a plant is a really a kind of a vegetable. So therefore, chocolate's a vegetable, so you can go ahead and have you some. And I, I'm, um, no, I'm just, I'm kind of exaggerating and to, to make a point, but there's this little voice inside of us that will rationalize that chocolate is actually a vegetable, and will rationalize anything. Oh, sure, yeah. To over overturn, right? Right. And so, of course, I had the chocolate, and I had some trouble with it, and and it was at that point that I realized that what I really needed to do was beat that little voice. That it, it didn't really matter necessarily what happened in my childhood. I mean, it was interesting what happened in my childhood, and I could have soulful discussions about why I was going to chocolate when I felt lonely. But that wasn't really how I was going to beat it. I was going to beat it by by recognizing that little voice and being able to ignore it when it came up. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, I want to get to your your strategies in just a minute but do you have any theories that you've come to have you come to any conclusions about why our culture seems to have such an obesity problem and binging and stress eating has really become so prevalent do you have any theories about why that's happening i do i do and i I think it's twofold first of all i i think that the food industry has an incentive to pack the most calories into the smallest space possible and make it look as attractive as possible. 
and um, and 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 so I've I've actually kind of networked with a lot of executives in the food industry, and I remember one conversation in particular. I just have to disguise the details a little bit so I don't get sued. But um, I remember a conversation where this marketing executive told me that the key insight that pushed their bar, you know, they sell those little snack bars, Mm -hmm. pushed their bar sales through the roof was when they removed the vitamins and they focused on making the packaging look more delicious instead. That's, that's what pushed things through the roof. And I, I just thought that that was emblematic of the problem in the food industry that, that it's perfectly legal to do things like that. Um, which is essentially fooling the consumer. And, and because food is something that we are, we are prone to make impulsive decisions about, we're really wired to trigger our lizard brains and, you know, kind of override the higher neocortical functions that get us to make more rational decisions. Um, it works. It really works. And there's millions and millions and millions of dollars that goes into research on how to make something taste and look more addictive. And then there are billions of dollars that go into advertising. I I saw a study where there's something on the order of 5,000 commercials that children are exposed to every year. Mm. And not one of them is for fruit or vegetables. (laughs) Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It's ridiculous. So, so put that all together. And then the, primary treatment message is that if, if you look at um, if you look at the message that are, is used to treat alcoholics or um, or food addicts if you were, go, were to go to a standard program they'll tell you they'll tell you that you really can't control yourself you can only hope to abstain one day at a time mm-hmm. and th- this is a very controversial thing that I'm saying in terms of the standard message in the culture and there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of good things that happen that happen in these programs also sure. but um, when you dig into the research, that turns out not to be true. And it, it, it turns out that the effectiveness of those programs is not necessarily any better than, you know, doing nothing at all, kind of the natural evolution of the, of the addictions. And, and so what, what you have on one side of the equation is the food industry making these hyper-palatable, delicious foods that are almost impossible to resist, that then billions of dollars in advertising spent to program our children, program us all as children, that this is what we should eat, um, driving us away from fruit and vegetables and you know healthier you know proteins and nuts and seeds and everything like that, and and then on the other side when you have trouble that they tell you that you can't control yourself. So is it any wonder that we're all out of control? It it. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like we're getting the wrong message on all all sides of the coin. Mm, I agree. I agree. There's some really confusing messages that are coming at us just constantly and keeping us from <laughs> from a, listening to our inner voice. So, but I do want to say about the programs. Uh, I think the, the thing that they offer is a real connection. Which you know, when you talk about feeding your lonely heart <laughs> with food instead of 
connectivity or spiritual food, I think that's one thing they offer, that connection, and then the spiritual practices that people... Oh, yes. Just, yeah, oh, yeah. So, yes. so I, I, I just don't want to devalue that in any way because those are invaluable, I think, for anyone facing addiction of any kind. So um, reach out I, for sure I, for that connection. Yeah. Addiction is an isolating experience, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. more difficult to remain addicted if you reach out and connect with your people and build a community around you. Mm, yeah. So break it down for us. You say losing weight is much, you found it was much more simple than you thought. We, we just make it so complicated. What's, what's the trick? Well, I mean, what really worked for me and worked for my clients was creating a crystal clear food plan. So like we talked about before, when there's ambiguity in what you're supposed to eat when you haven't made a lot of the decisions about you know, what's on or off your plan, whatever that plan may be, then you're requiring a lot of willpower to make the healthier choice. You're forcing yourself to make a lot more decisions throughout the day, and it's more likely that you're going to lean towards the um, easier, softer way. It's mm-hmm. more likely you're going to lean towards whatever tastes better, has more calories in a smaller space. Um, and so the first part is just having crystal clarity so that 10 neutral observers who followed you around all day would be able to say whether you were on or off of your plan. The second part is then to define this entity inside you, which you think of as your, you know, your, your fat thinking self, right? I call mine my inner pig. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is going to sound a little bit crazy, but once you know that you are, for example, I I will never eat chocolate again if I were to say that, then any little voice I hear inside my head that says, um, hey, I think you ought to eat chocolate because of X, Y, or Z, that becomes becomes my inner pig talking. And as soon as I hear that, I say, well, you know, no, chocolate is pig slop. I decided chocolate was pig slop. It's not in my diet and I will never eat chocolate again. So I don't eat pig slop and that's that. And it, it was really just a matter of creating that incredible clarity and then listening very carefully for that inner pig's voice. Um, now, there are there are other, are other people who talk about this, particularly in the more black and white addictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and the difference here, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want people to apply what I'm talking about to a more black and white addiction because, first of all, the other people are better at teaching it. There's a guy at a rational recovery that is a lot better at presenting that. But secondly, as a practical matter, most most people do make mistakes even when they apply this technique at first. And so there has to be an element of forgiveness and um, a willingness to resume if you if you do make a mistake. But yeah, that that's um that's I know it sounds overly simplistic for someone with my level of education and experience to promote something that simple, but that's really what I found that works. And I found that it's a matter of helping people to come up with that clear food plan and helping them to make decisions about it. You know, should they, should they never eat chocolate again? Should they have it on Saturdays? Um, What should they always do? What should they do, you know, conditionally and helping them really define that food plan so that they can hear their inner pig's voice and learn to ignore it. That's, that's where I found that the work is, but 
Yeah, it's, it's really that simple. So no ambi- ambiguity. And, and I, f- I feel like I teach yoga and meditation. So I feel like that defining the voice, the inner pig, that is the voice that is not your higher self, your, your true self. That's your sort of little evil twin, the devil on the shoulder, <laughs> the angel on the shoulder and the devil on the shoulder. Okay. Okay. So no ambiguity. Can you give us an example of um, maybe, I don't know, in the beginning, what your, your food plan looked like? Yeah. So having ambiguity, I'll just, I'll work with one rule at a time and we can go through them. Okay. Um, and by the way, I recommend four categories of rules. There are things that you'll never do again, things that you'll always do, things that you'll do under certain conditions and things that you can do without restriction. That's just like a nice little template for, um, you know, for getting started. So to distinguish the, to distinguish uh, an ambiguous role from a very concrete and precisely defined role, an ambiguous role might be something like, I avoid chocolate most of the time. And, you know, that's, that's a nice sentiment and it's a good goal, but the problem is what does most of the time mean? Um, does it count when you're sleeping? Um, if you, you know, if, if you only have it in the evening, did you avoid it most of the time? And so if 10 people were going to follow you around all week and then we asked them, did, did, did she avoid chocolate most of the time? Some of them would say yes and some of them mm. would say no and okay. they'd have these arguments about what's, what most of the time really meant. And you want, you want to eliminate that argument. Okay. But if I were to say, I only eat chocolate on Saturdays and Sundays, then at the end of the week, those 10 observers would all agree. And so it's, it's that kind of thing that I'm talking about. Having, having a very crystal clear plan so that there's, there's not even a little hole in the plan that your inner pig can poke its head through and rip apart because it, it will at at the moment of impulse, it will. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. And this is, you're talking here about, this is a long term weight management program. This is not a quick fix by any means. No. Yeah. No, I mean, I I don't really believe in dramatic fast weight loss Mm. anyway. I I think that um, I'm with you. Yeah. 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 The, The problem with that, Connie, is that if you create, too much of a caloric deficit, your like your lower brain function starts to drive you to be indiscriminating with food. So you you just can't walk around starving all day, mm-hmm. um, especially in the face of all of the you know easy sources of calories that aren't so good for us these days. So I, I encourage people to um, you know half a pound a pound a week, something like that. Yeah, yeah, and then main, maintain. Yeah. So no ambiguity. Okay. I like that idea. I like the idea of having sort of a plan, a discipline. I don't, don't do it very well, but if somebody gave it to me, I would definitely follow it. <laughs> so, so it's good. Good. And then defining that voice, that inner pig, that's, that seems to me that that would be the hardest for me. Like, hmm, that voice, that voice, I'm trying to think of an example so, um, do you have any other examples? I mean, well, Connie, uh, that that voice is any any voice that you hear that tells you you can't follow the plan. Okay, it, it's the voice of doubt. Um, 
I mean, should we talk about if maybe there's a specific, something specific you'd like to do for the next week or so? Um, we can just use that as an example. Well, <laughs> I'm doing okay with my food. I'm just trying to run every day because I'm training for a race. And I, f I have a voice that makes me procrastinate. So that that's my thing. I just procrastinate. I'll put on my running clothes and then by five o'clock, it's starting to get dark and I still haven't run. So, <laughs> like, <laughs> so specifically, what constitutes a run? How um, would you know that you ran? Well, my rule, I have an unambiguous rule <laughs> that I never run less than three miles. I'm trying to up my mileage now because I'm doing a 10K next month. So my rule for myself is is three miles minimum. Okay. So. Okay. And for how long are you going to follow this rule? Oh, that's a good question. Um, that's a really good question. Hmm. Yeah, I'm a little ambiguous about that. Would you be willing to follow it for a full week? Sure. Okay. Sure. Yeah. So then we, we would have an ambiguous, an unambiguous statement that says, I will always run at least three miles a day until March 12th, 2016. Wow, that's pretty simple. Right? Okay. So now I would ask you if you would be willing to um, work with me for just a couple of minutes. Okay. To identify the, um, I don't know if you want to call it your inner pig or we can just do that for simplicity. Um my inner uh, inner slacker. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so now, if I were to ask you how confident you are that you're going to run at least three miles a day until March 12, 2016, what would you say? How confident are you? I'm 50%. <laughs> Honestly. How, how come? What, what's going to happen? It could snow. <laughs> okay. Um... I could get an acting gig where I have to be on set at six in the morning and I'm just don't want to run before that because uh -huh. that would require me to get up at four and shower and yeah. So there's a few things that could happen, but what else? Oh, let's see. What else could happen? Uh, I mean, you know, the likelihood that one of my parents would need me to help them do something <laughs> i can think of all kinds of things excuses but uh -huh. mm. every one of those voices mm -hmm. comes from your inner slacker okay so, so let's just talk about this for a second okay um your inner inner slacker says it's impossible to get three miles in if it's going to snow what what do you think about that it's crap because <laughs> i've done it I've run in the snow. I've run in the rain. I've run when it was really cold. So I know I can do it. So, yeah. And could you run inside on a treadmill if you wanted to? Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Done that too. It's a little boring. It's really boring actually. So, but I could do that. And your inner slacker says that if you get an acting gig, there's no way you could run three miles that day. Mm, yeah. I mean, I would want to do it after. And the issue is sometimes it goes, I can't predict how long I will be there on set, that kind of thing. So, How, how late would you have to be on the set before you could not go for a run? 
Mm, oh, that's a good question. Maybe 8 p.m.? Okay. So would you want to revise the rule to say that between now and and March 12, 2016, I'll run three miles, at least three miles every day, unless I've got an acting gig, which keeps me on the set past 8 p.m.? Okay. I could do that. Okay, cool. And then the last thing I heard your pig say was that yeah, I'm sorry, not your slacker, you're, you're not a, slacker. You're a slacker. I'm sorry. <laughs> was that your parents will need something urgent? Yes. Well, um, what urgent things would they need that would prevent you from running? Maybe for to me to take them to a doctor's appointment or help them with something around their house or yeah, uh-huh. they're getting up there in age, so that's happening a little bit. And if that does that, if that does happen, would it? entirely prevent you from from running is there any way around that yeah there definitely is there definitely is i can run i can run afterwards or before or in between so yeah so how confident are you that you're going to run at least three miles a day between now and march 12 2016 unless you've got an acting give that keeps you on the set until after 8 p.m i'm pretty good i i actually feel pretty good about it yeah that helps that helps with the ambiguity. It really does. Connie, how confident are you? In, in I, I'm close to 100%. Uh-huh. I can do it. In fact, I'm pretty excited to go out for a run after we talk. <laughs> I'm dressed for it. I got dressed for it early. So, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Let, let me tell you the real secret about this. Okay. Um, the feeling of, one, of feeling close to 100% is about as good as you can ever do. Because there's, unfortunately, we all have to live with that inner slacker. There's, there's always that yeah. um, lizard brain that wants to find another excuse. So it's what you're feeling there, that remaining little bit of doubt is the presence of your inner slacker. And the way we deal with that is that we, we take a leap of faith and we say, okay, I'm going to separate myself my higher aspirations, my, you know, my true self and everything I want to accomplish in this life, I'm going to separate from that voice of doubt. I'm going to decide that that's not me. And so I'm going to say that I'm 100% confident because this is my goal. And the, I'm going to purge all doubt about the possibility of failure from my mind, just like, just like a child that's trying to ride a bike up the hill. You know, um, if you had a little girl who was trying to do that, you would probably tell her to visualize herself on top and don't think about anything else. Just visualize yourself accomplishing the goal and purge all doubt from, from your mind. If you happen not to make it, you'll just get up and do it again. But, um, and you can say that you're hundred percent confident because it's your slacker. That's not, not confident, not you. Does that make sense? Yes, totally. I get it. I really get it. That's good. I love the way you broke that down. That's, it's really profound actually. And I, I, apologize for putting you on the spot on your own show, but I thought it was the best way to, to demonstrate. No, I needed it. I needed to hear it. That's why I do this. I love you, We teach what we want to learn. So here's a question for you. I, I've heard this asked to many trainers, and but I've never asked um, someone like you. Food versus exercise. If we're trying to lose weight, which is really more important? Um, well, I, I'm not, first of all, I'm, I'm not a medical doctor or nutritionist. So I'm, I'm, you're just getting the opinion of a smart guy who works with a lot of people. Yes. Um, 
And my opinion is that food is more important than mm -hmm. exercise. I agree. I have to agree. I'm not a doctor either. I'm a podcast host, but I agree. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I agree. Can you, you want to talk about that a little bit? Just well, you, you don't burn as many calories as you think you do mm. from exercise. Mm -hmm. And f when you eat badly, it's not just a matter of the extra calories that you have. It's the hormonal imbalance that it creates. Um, and so you're actually setting up a cycle of weight gain or preventing weight loss. Um, I do think it's important to exercise with some consistency so you can build muscle and rev up your metabolism and you know, start to recur all those good benefits over time. But, um, you know, a whole hour of exercise, even for a guy my size, is what, five or 600 calories unless I'm mm -hmm. in the boxing ring or something like that. So, so, you know, I, I could out eat that and I mean, that's just, that's a very small snack for me. So. Yeah. Two pieces of pizza. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. So I, I agree. I think the food thing is the, is really important. So of course it's important to exercise and keep cardiovascularly fit and, and you do yoga and Yeah stay flexible and all that. But I think food is really a big, a really big and important. Well, the other thing is that food, food becomes part of you. So mm. when you're eating healthy, it affects everything that you do for the whole day. Um, so it's just such an important foundation that, that I, if you have to choose between eating well or exercising, I would say to eat well. Mm. Food becomes part of you. That sounded very spiritual when you said that. I like that. Yeah, it does. It it gives new meaning to you are what you eat. You really are. <laughs> you know, I, um, it's funny. I, I was brought up in a family of psychologists and therapists and counselors. And um, we kind of divided into the people that like hang out in the more spiritual camps um, and those who were, became a little more left brain scientists. I was a little bit more of a left brain scientist, but as I yeah. got older, you know, I started doing yoga and leaning towards the more spiritual camps. And um, one of the things that I've heard people say, one of my own food coaches told me that, you know, when you're feeling spiritually attuned, you want to eat high vibration foods. Mm -hmm. And when you're not feeling spiritually attuned, you want to eat more of the industrial foods and because they, you know, they each the industrial foods he says really block your access to spirituality and the um you know whole fresh ripe raw organic fruits and vegetables and things like that will facilitate your access to more spiritual energy and mm -hmm. i have to say I, I don't understand it in the in the same metaphor that he does but i have to say i think that's true i have to say that the days when i get up and i make my green smoothies and i um you know, and I, I spend the majority of the day, you know, with a diet that's predominated by those types of whole foods and other whole foods also, that I just feel more present. I notice that people smile at me more. I'm more patient. I'm more able to pay attention to what other people need as opposed to being obsessed with what I need. And I, I just think it's true. Mm. I think food becomes part of us. Uh, beautiful. I'm so glad you added that because I do like to try to 
be holistic about this thing. It is a body, mind, spirit practice. And I also wanted to ask you about any particular spiritual practices that have been beneficial for you to stay on your program. Any meditation or you said mentioned yoga? I Well, I recently started yoga after having contracted sciatica. Um, and then I stayed with it and started doing it more and more. And I, I do find that to be spiritual. Mm-hmm. There's a certain certain emotional poise that I experience and kind of a peak moment when I hold a pose for maybe you could explain it better than, mm-hmm. than I got. I first, I first noticed it when I was holding the pigeon mm. um, and I couldn't believe how long this teacher made us hold the pigeon. Mm-hmm. And I, at first I kind of wanted to get up and slap her and then, which, <laughs> which I would never do. Yeah, but, I um, and then I started to settle into it and I experienced this emotional poise is the best way that I could describe it. And so I'm getting a little bit addicted to that and doing it more and more. But the, the real spiritual practice for me has been hiking. I, oh, I We live yeah. in New Hampshire, not far from the White Mountains. And about once a week, I drive up and spend a day in the woods. Beautiful. And usually by myself, um, sometimes listening to music, sometimes listening to podcasts, sometimes with them, without headphones at all for hours on end. And it just kind of reminds me who I am and why I'm here and, you know, the kind of people that I want to help. And I get inspired to. Mm, beautiful. Share. Yeah. Connecting yeah. with nature is the highest, one of the highest vibrational things you can do forever. And that pigeon pose is awesome. It's a, it's a deep hip opener and the hips and that whole area of the body, the densest part of our body is said to store emotional issues. So when we're in those poses for an extended period of time, we can really get it deep into those connected connective tissue and release a lot of the issues in our tissues. So that's, that's probably that emotional poise that you're talking about. You're, you're just letting go. That's beautiful. That's really interesting. Are there any other poses in particular that, that do that? Well, yeah, any hip opener, um, the deep squat, Malasana, uh, that's a really nice pose. Last night I was teaching and I put my students in a frog pose. It's similar to pigeon in its effect, but it's, um, you do both legs instead of one. So frog pose is another good one. I mean, anything that works on the hips is, is going to give you that, that sense of, sort of getting deep, going deep into like the depths of yourself. So it's really good. I'm really really it. good. I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. Do it. Yeah. So that's really cool. I like that. So you say that we can reprogram ourselves to eat more healthfully if we follow this. Um, I guess my idea is, so we've been in this sort of self-imposed prison, right? How long does it take to create this new uh, way of being so that we can sustain a new way of, of, of living and with this new way of well, eating? Well, well, okay. So I'm, I'm legally not supposed to make any claims. So with, with okay. that disclaimer, I'll, okay. I'll just tell you that. I find that a lot of people can have a dramatic change in just one session or even just from reading the book because um, people don't realize that it's an option that they could never do X again. And they don't realize that it's an option to, def- to define something so with, with such crystal clarity that they'll be able to hear that 
negative voice inside of them, no matter what it says. And so there are a lot of people, I, I usually ask people to think about their single worst craving or food behavior. And let's work on that first, as opposed to overhauling the whole diet, which can be a little more complex and take a little more time, a few more sessions. Um, I, I tell people to look at the, the single worst trigger food or behavior or craving and just learn to hear their inner slacker or their inner pig on that one particular role. And there are many people who had one session. I remember a woman had one session. She'd been binging on popcorn her whole life and she had one session. And I actually even recorded the session. You could hear it on my site if you want. And she hasn't had popcorn again. It's, it's been, um, been a very, very long time. Um, other people, they kind of experiment with it for a while. Um, they, they try it and then they listen to their, what they usually tell me is that they heard the voice, but they decided to listen to it anyway. But see, they don't understand that that's progress because now they know that they can decide. It wasn't something Mm -hmm. that was out of control, but they made the decision. And usually those people come back and say, okay, now I'm really ready to do it. And we ferret out exactly what their inner slacker said that got them to change their mind. And we go back at it again. And, um, so it's this is not this is not a this is not like long term psychoanalysis. This is not really deep soul searching. This is the kind of work that I did with you in the five minutes that I did to really clarify the rule, clarify all the excuses, figure out everything that the inner slacker is saying and what you want to do about it and move forward from there. So it really can have a, an impact very quickly. Okay. Okay. Okay, so we can sustain, is what you're saying. We can reprogram ourselves, but it takes it takes practice, just like anything else. It just takes practice. It's kind of like introducing a disruptive idea into all of the thought algorithms in your head. It you you put the idea in there, and you can't really get rid of it. When, once once you've had that experience you'll start to want to apply it to other areas of your life. You'll see that your inner slacker comes up with other excuses and you can revisit it. And it, you know, even if you choose to ignore it for a while and keep doing what you did, um, the idea is still there and you can't, you can't get rid of it because you, because the power it gives you is intoxicating. And Mm. so over time, the idea in and of itself reprograms you to, listen more to your higher self and act in accord with your higher self and, and dismiss what your lower self has to say. Mm, Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, and going back to that room metaphor, that prison metaphor, maybe you can talk about the payoff. I, you mentioned a few things about the, the true payoff, the feelings of, of just elation and gratification from being free, being, um, yeah. Talk about the payoff that you and maybe some of your, patients have experienced i i no longer think about food all day long i concentrate my energies on my relationships and my work and enjoying my environment and thinking about what do i want to accomplish in this world with the you know with the second 50 years that i hopefully have on this planet um and it's exhilarating i I can only imagine what people feel like when they get their life back after having been exonerated from death row or something like that Mm. and having felt like, Mm -hmm. you know, they were in the deepest prison of prisons. And people, by the way, 
who are really in the throes of a food addiction, it, it almost feels like you don't have a life. It, it, it almost feels like you're spending so much time recovering from bloating and excess calories and you walk around feeling unattractive and you have to sleep it off. You don't have the energy to really accomplish things with your life. It, it just feels like your life is being wasted when you're overwhelmed with a food addiction. I'm not talking about people that are, you know, just eat a little badly now and then, although this is very helpful for them too. I'm talking about when it really overwhelms you. And it's exhilarating to, to feel that you've got the the power um, to to just exercise this demon from your life. It, it's exhilarating. And you can hear it in people's voices once they figure that out. You can say, I, I can't believe it, but my pig stayed in its cage and I don't really understand how this <laughs> happened, but, you know, I wish I'd talked to you 20 years ago. And um, I, I don't mean, I don't mean by the... I talk a lot about my personal experience with my clients. I call them clients as opposed to patients because I'm, this is not traditional psychology, the way yeah. that I'm working with them. Sure. So I offer it as a coach and not, not a, sure. not a psychologist, but um, yeah, you, you can even get this from just reading the book. You don't, I don't necessarily mean to say, well, gee, you have to come work with me. Um, you could even get this from just reading, reading the free book or listening to this, this free podcast. It's not a lot more complicated than that. Wow. Well, that's great. Well, let's give everybody all that information to to find you on the web and your books and everything, because I think that's that's just awesome that you're so generous to say that. So, so what you want to what you want to do is go over to Never Binge Again, neverbingeagain.com. And the book is free in the United States, I believe in Canada also. The the um, the Kindle and Nook versions of the book are free. If you, if you sign up for the Rita bonuses, it'll link you to a PDF version as well if you're outside the United States. But go over to Never Binge Again and um, make sure you do sign up for the Rita bonuses and that will get you some food plan starter templates so that you can see how to get started developing your own crystal clear set of rules. It will get you a whole bunch of podcasted case studies so you can hear me coach people through the whole process if you really want to know what it's like um oh that's cool that's really cool yeah i like that awesome and the book is available on amazon it's on amazon yep never binge again okay all right thank you so much dr livingston this has been a great conversation and i'm sure it will touch many lives so thank you Thanks, Connie. And I hope you uh, get to see a couple of those movies. But when you watch Revenant, be ready. (laughs) Yeah, there's some food issues that guy has. I'll just say that. (laughs) And they're not pretty. So. (laughs) You know what? It's it's on demand this month. So I'll make sure I look at it. Yeah. No, he's in survival mode. So I I shouldn't say that. He doesn't have food issues. He has survival issues. Totally. Okay. Well, thank you. Have a happy, healthy day, Dr. Livingston. Thank you so much. Thank you, dear. All right, take care. Back to Happy, A Journey of Hope, Healing, and Waking Up is a small but powerful book about healing from one of life's greatest tragedies, the loss of a child. It's about love and sadness and being human. The nine lessons in Back to Happy are intended to be food for a broken but awakening soul. Healing from grief and loss is possible. Finding joy again is possible. Back to Happy in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook at Amazon.com. For more information, visit BackToHappyBook.com.